You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. So there are certain moments you never forget in in my life in music. It, a lot of it circles around when different bands were introduced to me. And I'll never forget being on the road with the band Parrot. And our drummer, Boone, was cleaning his drums one day. And he had this record on. And we were all sort of found ourselves just sitting around for an hour listening to this before he finally said, yeah, it's, it's this band of guys. You should check them out. Need to breathe. It was a life-changing moment for me because I say <laughs> loudly and passionately, they are my favorite band that puts out new music at this point. So uh, really glad to get to talk to Bear Reinhardt, the lead singer, the front man for Need to Breathe. And uh, man, it's always a good time to get to talk to you because uh, it's such a crazy journey you guys are on. No two records ever feel the same. And you've put out a new album, Into the Mystery but this one's different. You guys all moved into a house together and decided to make a record together during COVID. So how do you do that and not murder each other in the process? <laughs> that's a good, that's a good, great question. Okay. Um, man, it was a weird deal. It's it, probably the strangest way we've ever made a record. And, and the way it came about was even stranger. We had written all these songs during the pandemic and kind of didn't, honestly, I wasn't really writing them for a record at all. We had just put out a record a year ago. Um, and nobody was thinking this is what's next. Um, I was really writing, um, just to learn about music, kind of fall in love with music again. I honestly be in my studio, just like laughing, you know, and, and coming up with new things. It didn't feel like, um, I had anything to turn in no project. And, and um, next thing you know, I'm sending them to the guys and like, I think we might have a record here. Um, and then the next challenge was talking to label into letting us, you know, get a budget to make another record that quickly after. <laughs> um, and so we kind of made up a lie, to be honest with you. We were like, <laughs> we we're like, well, what if, you know, we went to this house in Tennessee and we, and we all live there and we bring a film crew. And at first it was going to be as a guest on every song. We're going to have episodes that come out, you know, of each song itself. So we'll have this big series and they kind of bit at that. And, and honestly, I don't know if we believed it either. I don't know what our, for sure we, our thoughts were, but we got in there uh, two or three days and we're like, man, I feel like this is kind of a real record. I don't think this is like a guest thing. I don't think, I think it's special. And, um, and man, we had the most fun. I mean, funny to ask that question. It's like we had more fun making this record. We've had any record. We, there was not a single argument. Um, and you got to envision we're living in this place, waking up and having coffee and then, and then talking about how we're going to do the song, you know, for an hour or two in this little parlor room they had at the house and sit around the piano and play. And then the next thing you know, we go in there and mostly we track the song, you know, in one day. And so we just went day to day. And, um, and at night we'd sit around a campfire. So it was kind of an idyllic situation. No producer. We just brought an engineer with us and, um, Man, it's, uh, I feel like you can really hear the house in the record. It's pretty cool. The, the crazy part about that is I always look at being in the studio is this, it, it goes one way or the other because so many people in that process, like if I'm doing a big string section for somebody, I start to get emotionally invested in it. And then that person starts to change it. And either it becomes this beautiful, amazing thing, or we end up absolutely at, at odds with each other. Right? Like it just seems like the creative process. Sure. I'm stunned that you guys were able to go through it and still feel like that, that energy. And you're right. It does come through on the record, but it's amazing to think that, especially in COVID, like, do you feel like being isolated in an isolating time actually helped you guys come together? I think so. I mean, I think, I think, you know, the truth is like we've been on tour for 20 years and we've never not done it. It's the first time, you know, we, we were like, okay, the next six months, everybody's at home. Um, and so I think even just seeing each other in that small group was amazing. Like we all just were like, oh, this is going to be a great time regardless of what happens with the record. 
Um, and it's just somehow it's just the chemistry of the band right now. I mean, that's, I agree with you. Like the record making thing can be a grind and, and especially finishing a record, you know, cause I think the first half is always really fun dreaming it and then actually putting it on paper is tough. Um, but I think, um, I don't know, it's just kind of a magic time. We honestly felt like most of them were there. They couldn't have happened any other way. I don't think if, if the pandemic doesn't happen, we're not on tour. If we hadn't talked these people into letting us, you know, stay at this house for three weeks and, I just, it kept feeling like, man, one thing after another was like, this is just luck or blessing, whatever you want to call it. It just, it felt um, like we were along for the ride. Now I can hear people through my speakers already saying it's ESPN, get to some sports stuff. We will in a second, but I got to ask you one more creative process <laughs> question. Uh, realistically, first time you made a record in this band without your brother, right? So what was that process like as your brother decided yeah. to step away? Man, different. I mean, both both the last record and and this and End of the Mystery's most recent one were were done really without him making the album. And I would say we had we were a lot more insecure about it the last record than we were this one. Um, you know, it felt it felt like we kind of had found something new. Now we didn't know if anybody would like it, but we had <laughs> we had kind of like a new sort of identity. And I think we were confident in it. And just felt like okay, we're gonna this the guys in this room are making this record, and we're going we're going with that. And um, so I think uh, we're really proud of the fact that we've kind of found a way to keep going and also make it new. We're talking to Bear Reinhardt, frontman for Need to Breathe, and obviously you mentioned your brother. We've talked so much, and we've talked in the past about the Alabama naming thing. You answer questions about it all the time. But I want to go to a different spot when it comes to being named after Alabama football in general. When you look at all of the success of Alabama football, do you as a fan of football just get bored at some point that Alabama's always great? <laughs> you know, I don't because I mean, I, I have this vision of like me being a kid when they weren't very good all the time, you know? Um, and so I, I just remember I watched football games with my mom and I would just, by halftime, they're losing to whoever, you know? And I'm like, I'm out in the yard throwing the ball around just pissed. So... I think I think that's part of my memory. But the other thing is just, you know, even if you don't like the team or whatever, the way they're winning, um, the way Saban's changed things is just incredibly inspiring to me in the sense of just I grew up where it was like defense wins and he did he did too. That was what he did. And at some point it's like, no, we're we're gonna have to change the way we think about things in our whole organization. And I use that in what we do all the time as an inspiration. That's actually a really great point. And, you know, I think it's always it's always funny to me to hear where musicians can sort of leverage their success. I'm the first to admit that when things were going well with the band, I reached out to my beloved Raiders and immediately said, let me play the national anthem. And they did. So, like, I got to do that. Have you guys used, you, you know, have you have you been able to, like, get we, an angle in with Alabama? We we certainly have met Saban and done the thing. I mean, one of the funniest story about it, we went to meet him in his office and he's got all these, like, I guess they're replica rings in the, and then it's like, and his assistant comes in and says, you could try them on, you could do whatever. So of course we have uh, immediately put all the rings on. We're sitting at the desk, taking pictures, like posing like rappers basically. And, and he walks in. <laughs> and so it, it completely embarrassing. Like we're, you know, fidgeting to get him off our, our hands before he shakes his hand and everything. So yeah, we've been, uh, you know, lucky enough to go to a bunch of games and, and man, it's awesome. And, and the same way I'm a Braves, I'm a huge Braves fan. I mean, diehard. And um, so every chance we get to go play there, we obviously do that, but the dugout stuff and all the, you know, um, we're so super into it. I mean, is there this moment? Cause like, the Zach Brown guys, for example, big Braves fans, big Georgia fans, like that sort of makes sense. But you've got the Bama thing. Like, are you out there trash talking other uh, other bands on the road? Yeah, 
Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, there's a guy, Drew Holcomb, uh, who's Nashville singer-songwriter guy. He's, he's a Tennessee fan, so I let him hear it all the time. Um, but, yeah, anybody on the road. I mean, we, I used to be more serious about it. I still love watching the games and everything, but it used to be like no one can talk on the bus when the game is on. Um, I've, I've eased up a little bit about that, but, yeah, everybody else hears it. Yeah, uh, by the way, I could use a tutorial on how to do that. I haven't figured out how to ease up during Raiders games. Someday I'll grow up, but I, I don't know <laughs> when that'll happen. I, but not everybody in the band is equally passionate about the sports thing, right? Like, Loveless isn't a, a huge sports guy, right? So is it... Not is it huge, but, you know, he did... Yeah, he's got a, he's got his son named Henry after Hank Aaron. So at least you got to give him, like, he's... They are... I mean, Loveless is a Braves fan, and, and he's the one that'll sit up and watch it with me when I got it on. That's which is in and of itself. Like there's a band bonding thing that it was always weird for me when I was out on the road because none of the rest of the guys on that tour cared like and any of the, them cared about uh, sports at all. So I'm like the one yeah. guy that's sitting there hiding the remote control on the bus just to make sure that nobody messes it up during the, the games I want to watch. We're talking. To- yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I'm like, I'll park. I'll park three miles away from the venue as long as the bus can still see the TV, get the games on. Can we just acknowledge for a second that is like the under-talked-about thing that you know which buses on a Saturday or Sunday are sports fans by where the bus is parked. Like, that is 101. No doubt. It could be be completely the other side of town from an arena, which I think is one of the best things. Uh, Let's let's talk a little bit about your plans uh, for y'all coming into the fall. What's the tour uh, plan look like? What are you guys uh, putting together? Yeah, we're we're hitting most of the big spots. We're doing 38 shows, um, the most ambitious tour we've ever done. We put two out two records out in the last year, so it's um, hard to come up with a set list for that. But we've, we're doing more songs than we've ever done, and a bigger production. And, and um, we got a couple guys coming out and playing with us. And um, we've got a band called The New Respect who's opening up, and they're going to be the background singers. So a lot to look forward to. We're stoked. I saw you guys live not too long ago uh, on the last tour, and it was all acoustic. Uh, how do you sort of manage yeah. sort of staying true to what that show was? Because I think it really showcased so much of what you guys do well, but now you want to come out and do it big. Like, how do you how do you balance the two worlds? Yeah, you know, we'll do our best. I think I think we, we found that that acoustic tour is just so great because of space and talk and kind of, you know, everybody's there, you know, for that thing. Um but it's nice in the big tour. Well, we definitely have what we call a campfire moment. You know, it's well five, five, seven, eight, you know, whatever it is, songs in the middle of the set that we kind of really, you know, put the screens on one thing and just sort of relate to the audience. And 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 um, I think that's special. All right. So we all, we everybody knows the Bama fandom, the Braves fandom. Also says on a note here that you're a Bears fan. Why, why do we do we know why Bears? I, I don't know this. Yeah, I mean, I was I was born in '80. So five years old, I'm into football, and it's you know Walter Payton, Jim McMahon, Refrigerator Perry, the whole like Super Bowl shuffle, all that. Um, and my dad, for some reason, um, liked the 49ers, and I couldn't stand them. And you know, at that time, they were always playing in the NFC Championship. So um, yeah, I was a big time Bears fan. Just Walter, I wore Bears clothes. I remember my first football, you know, rec football thing, and all that. I was I had Bears gear on. Well, there's still time. I mean, I'll get you some swag. We'll get you some Raiders swag. Like, they're in Vegas now. It's really trendy. You know, silver and black. is It's slimming bear. Like, I'm going to work on you because, like, Sarah's too much of a Bears fan in here. We're going we're gonna to switch you over over time. Hey, I really appreciate your time. Check out – everybody check out Into the Mystery. And I get asked all the time, uh, one of the songs that I used to have as a theme for radio for me was Money and Fame. I think it's one of the better songs that has been put out yeah. in the last 20 years, man. I, I, you guys do great work. Thank Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate it. Keep crushing. It's just fun to watch this journey for you guys. 
Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. The Bulls are back, baby. And if you want the exact definition of back, don't ask me. I really don't know. It's probably just like probably making the postseason and hopefully being kind of like middle of the road Eastern Conference team. But I'm excited about it. I'm going to explain why I'm so excited about the Bulls. The, the Bulls moves. I'm so excited I can't talk. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jace Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And let's get right to it. It's Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. NBA free agency rolls on. And Fitz, I was recording around the horn today, talking about how the Bulls moves, adding Lonzo Ball, adding Alex Caruso. You, you got, um, you know, the existing core that kind of went downhill a little bit last year. Um, after acquiring Nikola Vucevic, which was surprising, you added this great all-star to Zach Levine and it just never quite clicked. So with those moves, I was still hesitant but optimistic. You add DeMar DeRozan, who's still, you know, basically top 30 player, and the Bulls are at least interesting, right? People are asking me, why are you so excited? They're not as good as, you know, the Nets and the Bucks and all these other East teams because I'm going to want to watch them. And they have a shot to at least be in the postseason and continue to get better with some young stars that are going to improve. And that hasn't been the case for a while. I keep looking at the Bulls situation and thinking about relevance and how important relevance as a concept is for NBA franchises. At some point, even if you've been a tremendous brand in the past, are you relevant today to players that are coming in and playing? The Bulls have been not just bad, they've been irrelevant for a while, and you know that. The, this move may not make them a championship team, but if it makes them interesting and fun to watch, then it changes the entire way we perceive an organization. Just look at the way we're talking about the Hawks today, the Knicks today, versus how we were talking about them a year ago. And when we talked to Bobby uh, Marks yesterday, one thing he mentioned is it's tougher to get from the four seed to the top than it is to get from not even in the playoffs to the middle of the pack. But you've got to get to the middle of the pack if you want to become a place that for any reason players want to go play. The Bulls doing this, I think, is a huge step forward to relevance, which in the next few years could change how appealing they are to free agents, and it changes the way the franchise is perceived. It's, that's a huge part of it. It's not a place that players have chosen to go. It's not somewhere that players have wanted to go. In the hunt for free agents, the Bulls often roll out all the stops and then watch as teams uh, grab the guys they wanted. So it's a big deal that DeRozan and Lonzo Ball want to come here. You know, don't have to have the same traditional lineup that you used to with, you know, the two guards, two forwards, a center. There's a lot of ball handlers on the scene. That has to be figured out. But you can move Patrick Williams to his natural spot at power forward. You've got the young guys in Williams, Lonzo Levine, that all have a lot of growth. And and one of the things that has been said about Lonzo over the last season plus is that he's getting better at every aspect of his game. You've got now this this guy in Alex Caruso that adds a ton of defensive grit, good leader, backup point that you need. Still probably need a backup center there. Um, but the people who want to hang on to draft pieces or youngsters like Thad Young, who the Bulls had to give up to get DeRozan, I'm just not interested in that. I have not seen the Bulls, and I know it's a new front office, so the, the, the sample size is small, but I haven't seen them turn draft picks into anything meaningful, especially when they hover around five or seven. And if your team is good enough, the draft pick you gave up, the first rounder, is going to be 23-24, hopefully. So I would much rather put together a team that's fun to watch now, can compete now, that may not be the best, but is building, to your point, a reputation where the Bulls are not 
a last case scenario or an also ran where they're a place that then other players want to come to. And thank you. Thank you. That is what we're doing. We're building. And that's, I will just say it's, it's sadly, but it's lowered expectations. The last really exciting bulls moment was a Derrick Rose banked three mean mug to the camera that sent us all into a frenzy. And since then it's been disappointment and mediocrity. And so I'm excited to go for it. I'm also excited that this new front office is coming in and saying we're going to spend, we're going to go grab guys, we're going to entice people. Super exciting. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, the Lakers are another team making a lot of moves. Um, you look at now their depth chart. You've got, you know, Russ and Kendrick Nunn uh, filling out your point guards. You know, you've got Wayne Ellington, Malik Monk coming in to play with Horton Tucker, Bazemore and Alfonso McKinney uh, at the small forward with LeBron. And then you've got uh, Trevor Ariza, another vet coming back. Carmelo Anthony, another vet coming back to shore up what you got with Anthony Davis. Marcus All still under contract, not as uh, useful anymore, but they did pick up Dwight Howard coming back as well. You've got a lot of veterans. And Zach Lowe said, Carmelo Anthony and those kind of guys that are maybe ring chasing at a minimum price are exactly what the Lakers needed to do. This is the kind of flyer the Lakers were going to have to take. They did not have any cap resources left to go. They're going to have to get guys that are chasing rings on the minimum. And Carmelo, to his credit, everyone said all he wants to do is ISO and shoot twos. In Portland, he bought into a role as a spot-up shooter, shot the three well. That's the role he's going to have to play for the Lakers. But with all of these guys, whether it's Ellington, Bazemore, Ariza, Carmelo, with the exception of Ariza, I think the big question is going to be when push comes to shove, when you're in the conference finals, when you're in the second round of the playoffs, whatever it is, can you stay on the floor defensively? Do the Lakers, who have made their bones, all the sexy stuff, whatever. They have made their bones on defense. Yep. Have they hurt their defense too much in this, in this, all of this uh, roster building? I think that's remains to be seen, but I, they, they, they are going to be a really interesting team. Interesting is a particular word, sir. Like when it's an interesting you, word. When, when your significant other comes in the room and says, do you like this outfit? And they say, it, it, it's interesting. <laughs> like, that's sort of where I am with the Lakers. Like, it's interesting in the sense that maybe I don't get it. Maybe it's going to work spectacularly. And the minute that you walk the runway with this Lakers roster, everybody's going to be absolutely infatuated. But to me, it still feels like what we're looking at here is a massive crapshoot. And maybe that's all you could get when you expected, as we said yesterday, Wendy mentioned, you know, upwards of 10 players on minimum contracts. Well, there's always going to be... A lot in that process of a minimum contract. There's a lot of risk in it. It's going to be home run or strikeout. Now, I understand that. I just think that today there's a lot of praise happening for the way this Lakers roster is constructed, and all of that praise seems to be heaped with just loads of benefit of the doubt that I'm not sure I can give. Yeah, it, it's they're still a favorite. They still have the incredible core of Anthony Davis, LeBron James, and Russ Westbrook. There are certainly questions about chemistry and fit there. But you add some veteran players, you add some of the pieces that you need, and, you know, I'm not dropping them out of the favorite spot, but I think you're right. Interesting is the word for it, because a lot of people don't know what to expect. Kendrick Perkins seems to think this was just what the uh, doctor ordered. What Rob Palenka did yesterday, all he did, Rachel, was set the temperature. He set the temperature by going sign Trevor Ariza, Kent Bazemore, Wayne Ellington, and all of those guys. And now all of a sudden he had the cake ready to bake and he went put it in the oven by stealing the deal and going to get Carmelo Anthony. The mission is complete along with Dwight Howard. Book it. The Lakers are on their track, back on track. That's just to say, that's a big leap for me to take. Mm -hmm. You know, the real part of what you said at the beginning of this is 
if AD and LeBron are healthy, then they're a championship caliber team. And that doesn't matter who's around them. I can't look at what they put around them and suddenly say that it changes any of that. It comes down to if AD and LeBron are healthy, cool. And if they're not, this is still not a championship caliber team to me. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, Twitter, at ProfitXAI. It's an AI-powered NBA Athlodex, an index of athletes. And Bobby Marks tweeted out, the seven free agent signings with the Lakers, average contract value at Profit XAI, $10 million. Real-time contract average $3.7 million. So the number of players who are worth more taking less to go there, presumably played alongside those players and have a shot at a title, uh, is quite good. So good for the Lakers and being able to get that value at a lower cost because of what they're trying to put together there. Now it's just a matter of what happens. One last thing we can't go without mentioning Andre Drummond to the Sixers, a guy who uh, has had a beef for quite some time with Joel Embiid to the point of Embiid calling him a bum in social media before. That'll be an interesting one to watch. Drummond, obviously not the guy he used to be. That's not really the same battle anymore. But I'd be curious about their plans over at the Sixers to reintroduce those guys to each other as teammates. We always love finding those social media receipts on those beefs. It's Spain and Fitz coming up. We got some NFL news the day. We'll do it quickie style. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. In a few minutes, we'll get back to NBA free agency by going over to the Goodyear hotline quickly, though, before we get to some NFL news and notes, Sarah. Kevin Pelton did not give your Bulls yeah. a big grade on mm-hmm. the DeMar DeRozan signing. Do you want me to beat him up? Um, I think it'd probably be a more efficient beating if I did it. Um, probably, just, that's uh, probably, you know, that's a fair point. Like, offering up I can't some reality. Even argue with that. Um, I got quite a long reach. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we'll get into that. We'll ask Friedel about it because I'm, I'm reading his, his assessment and there are some things that he said, including a lot of primary ball handlers on the court together. Um, his best, you know, success with the with the Spurs lately came as a point forward, um, which is going to be tough to play him at instead of maybe using him more as like a small forward with with a different lineup. So he's saying some things that check out, um, but we'll, we'll we'll get into it some more. I'm going to I'm going to spare Pelton a beating for now. OK. Okay, uh, well, Kevin, if you're listening in this moment, you sound like you need a hug, but I'm not going to yep. give you one, good sir. That's <laughs> what's going to happen. In the meantime, that's my Tonight. idea of a beatdown, apparently. That's why <laughs> I'm soft. All right, uh, there's a ton of NFL news and notes to get to, so we're going to do it the way only this show can with some quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Remind me to never let anybody within the Indianapolis Colts organization give me any update on estimated timing. Mm. All right, hear me out here. The Colts all-pro guard Quentin Nelson has the same foot injury as quarterback Carson Wentz, which means he's out anywhere from 5 to 12 weeks. Another just absolutely strange time frame there, Sarah, is 5 to 12 weeks for one of the best offensive linemen in the NFL, and also strange to have two players of such significance with mirroring and injuries. Yeah, you know, with Wentz, it's an injury that they said he had in high school that over the course of time, that break that he didn't realize was in there sort of kept shifting until the piece broke off and now has to be removed, that bone from his oh. foot. With Quentin Nelson, there was no prior injury, just a misstep, or his foot got stepped on in his case. Um, so it is wild and weird that they have. I just sounded like Johnny Carson. It's wild stuff. Um, it's wild and weird that they had the same injury. But also to your point, the timeline is basically uh, by by the explanations of doctors, just how long it takes people to recover is vastly different for this particular thing. But losing your quarterback at a major successful guard, not a great day for that team. 
Yeah, and I'm still going to go back to 5 to 12 weeks. I get, right. I, you're right. It, it is a very smart medical way to go. I just think the team at this point should be like, we don't know. Like, that's the easier <laughs> answer. I Let's think they basically the did. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the next story. Quickies. By the way, this music is just kind of getting me fired up for it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm all in for it. Uh, fired up is a good way to describe the New York Giants and padded practices, but particularly Joe Judge, their head coach, was not pleased because there was a team-wide brawl, and that, that, that is the word, team-wide brawl that included starting quarterback Daniel Jones at the bottom of the pile. Like, of all the things you don't want to see in training camp, it's not just a fight. It's a fight where your quarterback is at the bottom of the pile with a bunch of fat guys on top of him for no good reason. Yeah, Judge, uh, according to beat reporters, was the angriest anyone's ever seen him and perhaps the angriest anyone's ever seen anyone. Just an endless tirade featuring all the words we're not allowed to say on the air. And then... Push-ups and laps, push-ups and laps, push-ups and laps before one last lambasting before they were sent on their way. I guess Evan Ingram uh, retaliated after there was a late hit on running back Corey Clement and then safety Logan Ryan hit Ingram and then the rest of the team jumped in and it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, just a mess. And to your point, Jones right in the middle of it. Um, When asked why he got involved, he said, I'm part of the team. And, you know, some people said, in fact, one said, Hey, golly, I love it, uh, which is not exactly what I imagined a running back then it felt to say. But, um, yeah, it, it was uh, not a good look. But somehow I think Dan Campbell and the Lions might be jealous because he said on the first day of pads, he wants to see an almost all out brawl, but there isn't one. So oh. maybe they should just switch places and... Campbell can oversee the Giants brawl that he wanted and Judge can get to a regular practice that doesn't involve people pummeling each other. You know, I heard Mike Golick Jr. earlier on Shanae and Jr. talking about how coaches will say they don't want to see a fight, but they'd like to see the fire of a fight. And I don't disagree with that concept. It's just you don't want to see your quarterback involved in it. Also, was there ever like one thing that like so, you know, I've told you before, my dad didn't really swear. My mom swore growing up, but my mom swore like a sailor. But my dad, when he was putting up the Christmas tree, always gave the same like line and I I, I would get (laughs) fired immediately. And it's always the same thing in the same order every single time he was putting the lights on the Christmas tree. And you flash forward and I was like, you know, 20 years old out on my own putting up the Christmas tree. And what do you know? Bam, out of reflex, I gave the entire thing. thing. I realized in that moment. Did you have that growing up? Like Um, my parents don't really swear. My mom never swears. I don't think I've ever heard her swear except for when we play um, Cards Against Humanity, where she's forced to read what's on it, which is always endlessly funny for us. Uh, Because she does not swear at all. My dad very rarely swears, but his go-to was always in any sort of driving situation where someone would cut him off. He Mm. would always go with the jack bleep. Jack butt. That was his go-to. But I don't know that I've heard my parents swear at all in the last, like, five years. I don't know what happened to me. You know, they always say that many people say that, you know, you only say that when you, you can't think of anything else to say. My mom is particularly smart, always has been. She's a brilliant woman. And whenever somebody would say that to her, she would look at it and say, hey, no word has the same impact as blank and blank you. And so, yeah. you know, that was always yes. her, you know, her, her quality response. Speaking well, of quality you need res- an F-bomb. It's the only <laughs> it's the only thing that works in that situation. I mean, you're not wrong about that. Let's go to the next story. Quickies. All right. So I feel like right now everyone within the Vikings organization is dropping plenty of F-bombs because there is some frustration and it is coming out in a big, big way. Now, for anyone that didn't see this, we talked about it the other day that uh, the quarterback situation is less than ideal for the Vikings as Kellen Mond 
uh, who, who tested positive for COVID-19. And because of close contact tracing, that meant that a couple of the quarterbacks, Kirk Cousins and Nate Stanley, uh, were placed on the COVID-19 reserve list because they've been in close contact and they're not vaccinated. And it has caused, obviously, their coach to speak out. But now even the team owner has spoken out, saying today he is, quote, concerned about the team's current COVID uh, situation. And he also said, quote, it's safe to say our number one priority is the health and safety of our players, our coaches, our staff, and ultimately the entire community. He didn't come out and say anything specific yet, but he's not mincing words about how they feel about COVID-19, which is uh, interesting to hear an owner coming out and saying this there. Yeah, I mean, the Vikings have the lowest rate in the league for vaccinations. They're 70 percent in the process and only 64 and a half percent fully vaccinated that's while the league overall is at 90%. So they are dragging down the numbers. And the fact that Kirk Cousins is one of them and the amount of money they have invested in him and him being available. Fitz, this is particularly interesting in football because you get 17 regular season games. That's a big thing to miss a single game in the NFL season. And to do so because of a choice you've made and not because of an unpreventable injury or otherwise, that's not going to reflect well, especially for the leader of the team, which choosing it or not, and whether you, you want it to be or not, is your quarterback. It's, it's, yeah. it's a rough look for that team. Well, and not only are the Vikings dealing with that, but for anyone that didn't see, they released cornerback Jeff Gladney after he was indicted by a Texas grand jury on a charge of felony assault against a woman he was previously in a relationship with. They're, quote, following our review of today's indictment against Jeff Cladney. We've decided to release yeah. Jeff immediately. Started as we 15 previously games. Said we take these matters very seriously. Started and 15 a, games for the team as a, a rookie last year. For them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, uh, the, the Vikings dealing with all sorts of complications and, and issues right now, and they haven't even gotten to the point that they're even close to playing their first game with any meaning. So that's not the kickoff to the season I think the Vikings were hopeful uh, to get, and the chaos isn't going to end anytime soon. Speaking of chaos, it's total chaos across the NBA free agency landscape. We'll get you updated on the latest with one of our favorite experts next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and hanging out with you on You're the You're listening ESPN to the Spain and Fitz Podcast. Yeah, shout out to me because my Bulls are back. And again, back does not mean contenders. It just means I want to watch them and they will be interesting and relevant. Hopefully. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive makes bundling easy and affordable. Get a multi-policy discount by combining your car, home, motorcycle, commercial, auto, and more. All your protection in one place. Bundle and save at Progressive.com. Joining us now, ESPN NBA reporter, often has patches on the sleeves of his blazers, occasionally calls me and my husband at around 10 p.m. and says he's coming over without an invite when he's in town. Might have just happened a week ago. It's Nick Friedel. What's up, Nikki? Occasionally. I mean, I've done that for like 12 out of my 37 years of life. You guys guys home, I'm coming over. (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm pretty consistent in my my calls to SS. I, I light right. up the bat phone. I see if you all are there, and I'm like, "Hey, I'll sit with Brad." Well, Brad's asleep. That's okay. I'll wake him up. All right. That's, well, and that's how it went down last time. Uh, Nick, let's start with your account, which is the Warriors. Anything to take out of this Curry deal? Then he earned it, and that's it. That's that's. I mean, this was to be expected, right? This is exactly what everybody in the organization thought. And Sarah, it's absolutely the move to make because even if Steph 
starts to tail off a little bit in the next couple of years, and he's not the player that we saw in the last season, which was damn near the MVP, he is still going to fill up the stands every single night. So in that regard, it's a very smart business decision by Joe Lacob, who are his owner and the rest of that ownership group, because they know that Steph is a generational talent. They know the relationship he's built in the Bay Area over the years, and they know that even if they fall off a little bit and they're not in the championship conversation every year, people will still pay really good money to come watch Steph Curry perform every night. And behind all of this is the fact that Steph has only ever said that he wants to spend his entire career with one team wearing one jersey. So this was the move that was happening, and it was good to see both sides make it happen now. Nick, with that being said, there's a lot of conversation that, you know, Wiseman could be on the trading block and that they were going to be aggressive in trying to make the team better other than just getting healthy. What's next for the Warriors? The hope, Mr. Fitz, is that Wiseman gets a little bit better. They develop Kaminga and Moody. And one of two things happens from that. Either those three guys become solid contributors in the next year or two, or those three guys, the next time a big name comes up on the market, are packaged in a deal that can get them that star that they want so much. So either way, the Warriors have given, them, given themselves two lanes to go down with the moves that they made in the last week. But guys, we could talk all day about Steph and Draymond being motivated and Wiseman and the two new picks and what do they do in the future? If Clay Thompson does not come back looking like Clay Thompson pre the Achilles injury and pre the ACL injury, none of it matters. Because as Bob Myers said the other night, your number two or three player on your team, your max player has to look like that number two yeah, or three max sure. player. And if and Clay's gonna, not, they're in yeah. trouble. That's going to be the question for the Warriors as they get some folks back to help Steph out. Nick Friedel, ESPN NBA reporter, is with us here on the Goodyear Hotline. Hey, quickly, because I want to talk Bulls and Lakers, but you mentioned that you know they want to try to get that star, and maybe and you know maybe they move Wiseman. The Trailblazers haven't done anything. We're hearing about Draymond spending a lot of time with Damian Lillard out in Tokyo, <laughs> and a lot of people kind of think, all right, they get one more year with Dame, but they're not adding anything now. It doesn't seem like a place that's going to do a lot. Is that still in the back of the mind as, as a possibility, um, or are you hearing anything else about how the Portland is going to try to keep keep Lillard around? So I don't think that Lillard would be the best fit with a team that already has Steph and Clay. I, I love Dame Lillard. I think he's an unbelievable player, but I'd be surprised if the Warriors ended up being the landing spot. I think Portland is going to do everything in their power to make it possible for him to stay. But to me, the, the team that would fit the best and the the stage that he could perform on every night would be the Knicks. If you put Dame and Tibbs together in the culture that's being created in New York City, that would be really, really interesting to watch. But uh, as of now, I don't see any movement in the moment. We're talking to Nick Friedel, ESPN NBA reporter on Spain and Fitz there. Spain, Jason Fitz, so... Let's get to the team you know this show always talks about, the Lakers. What do you think of the roster construction out there in L.A.? They got like the 2013 All-Star team locked down. 
<laughs> this team may not win a title, but damn, are they going to be interesting every day. It's like a reality show on steroids. It's like, okay, you've got LeBron and AD, and you know all about them at this point, but, oh, hey, there's Russ, and there's Dwight Howard, <laughs> and there's Carvello. What? You've got all these name-brand players who have been in the public eye for years and years and years. As we sit here right now, I don't think that they're at the top of the West, but because it's the Lakers and their track record, I am sure they'll make another move or two, a big move, before all is said and done going into the trade deadline and into the season if they stay healthy. So I don't think they're at the top right now, but are they sure going to be interesting to follow throughout the next few months? Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. There's that word again, interesting. We all agree. Hey, we got to talk about the Bulls. I saw Kevin Pelton gave them a D-minus for their DeMar DeRozan deal. Certainly some fit to to be figured out. But, Nick, you know better than anyone what it feels like in Chicago when the Bulls are interesting, when there are players to get excited about. It hasn't been that way in a long time, even though Zach Levine is a superstar without the right pieces around him. It just hasn't been fun. It really hasn't. So to, to know that you got Lonzo and Levine and and, and uh, DeMar DeRozan, to know that you might actually see, um, you know, the, the, the big deal that was supposed to change things for the Bulls last season and ended up kind of making us worse somehow, right? Um, that, that that actually might pay off now. Um, I'm excited. You know, I, I, I want people to be excited with me. So can you make me feel good about this or are you going to Kevin Pelton me? No, I'm going to Nick Friedel you for many, many years and oh, say no. that while the Bulls are interesting and, and they made some cool moves today, I don't think they're that much better. Mm. <laughs> like, I really, I really don't think that they are, they are anywhere near Milwaukee, Brooklyn, but even like the Knicks and the Hawks and the Sixers. Uh, I, I just don't believe that all those moves – are going to put the Bulls in a place where you you view them as some sort of better-tiered Eastern Conference player. Like, they are going to be I just don't see how you can look at Vucevic and Levine and Ball and DeRozan and and Williams and, and say that that's not a better team than what the Knicks have on their roster. Well, the Knicks have Tibbs. And the Knicks have Julius Randle, who's coming into his own. And the Knicks have the Garden to sell. I I don't want to completely rain on the Bulls parade on what I know is such a big day for the organization. But, Sarah, I just don't think that the pieces are going to fit to a point where they're anything more than a team that gets knocked out in the first round. And when you are spending that kind of money and when it's been that long for a city and an organization to feel relevant again, Good for them. They, they, there's some action there. But you've traded all your picks, <laughs> and you've mortgaged them in for DeMar DeRozan? <laughs> like, I mean, DeMar DeRozan, DeMar DeRozan was top 30 NBA players in ESPN rankings last season. You know? Okay, I mean, congrats. I mean, I, DeMar DeRozan, there's a reason that the Raptors dumped him. Like, you know, if, if we're to being get honest, Kawhi Leonard. To get Kawhi Leonard, yeah. which worked. But all those years, DeMar DeRozan kept no-showing in the playoffs, and Toronto knew it. And so, yeah, it was Kawhi, but there was a reason they were ready to move on from DeMar. And I like him. I think uh, he's a play. I think the Bulls are better, but I don't think they're that much better. 
You know what? Get out of here. You got a better chance at coming over to my house next time. Like, Connecticut's a long drive to get free food and free drinks. I'm just saying. Next time, I'm going to be asleep, too. I'm not even picking up the phone to tell you that Brad's asleep and that I don't want you to come over and hang out. I'm just going to fake being asleep. Bye, Nick. That won't be the first time that's happened. I love you, too. (laughs) Bye, Nick. Man, what a buzzkill. You know what? I'm taking a hug away from Nick, too. It's yeah, no hug Nick. No one's getting hugs today. Yeah. That's right. No hug hey, Nick. if you want to feel better, just listen to my podcast. Tune into the That's What She Said podcast, hosted by yours truly and fueled by Gatorade. We appreciate their continued support of women sports journalists and women athletes here at ESPN and everywhere. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. We'll talk a little bit of Olympics, some good stories coming out of Tokyo, coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Summer Games news and notes brought to you by California Almonds. Representing your country or representing your trivia team, almonds are a natural fuel for the best you. California Almonds own your every day, every day. Still a little angry at Nick Fidel, by the way. Nick Fidel, Yeah, now we got two t- people to punch. Yeah. Pelton well, and Fidel. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to reality. hugs. I don't want, huh. I don't want realism. I just want them to tell me how awesome it's going to be, even if they're wrong. Yeah, this is like the the preseason football moment. Like, if you can't be happy about it now, then what's the point? Uh, In the meantime, we can be happy about much of what we've seen, obviously, throughout the course of the Olympics. We do want to get you updated on some of the biggest stories coming out from Tokyo. And, And right now, there's no bigger conversation happening throughout the entirety of the Olympics than Simone Biles. We had all eyes on her expected return. Uh, finally, uh, obviously, as she had pulled back for mental health reasons, and we've talked a lot about respecting that and respecting sort of the process she's gone through to uh, get herself ready to compete. But she did finally compete and get, got herself a bronze medal. But Sarah, it wasn't without more revelation as we find out that through the process of everything else she's been dealing with over the course of her time in Tokyo, there was also the unexpected death of her aunt while she was in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And you just look at all the layers that people don't know, and it's a reminder that we can't just assume that we understand what somebody's going through. Yeah, and Fitz, I think people who only read the top level or headlines about this saw mental health and didn't dig deeper. But over the course of the last week plus since she removed herself from some of the events, Simone has been documenting her efforts to get back out to competition including borrowing uh, workout spaces and training facilities out in Tokyo to try to get rid of the quote-unquote twisties, which is literally where her body and her brain stop communicating about the number of rotations and where they are in the air, and it's incredibly dangerous. And she posted videos of trying to get back to the uneven bars and not being able to re-catch the bar or land her dismounts. So the reason she's able to do beam is because no twisties. She changed the dismount, which is the only part of the event that would require rotations and twists, to a double pike, which is something she could do years ago and hasn't done since she was 12, and simplified it, but did other things on the event that earned her the bronze. And Dominique Dawes, four-time gymnastics Olympic medalist, my fave back in the day, was on KJNZ this morning and kind of explained how she managed to get back to competition, not because she's already fixed the problem, but this was an event that didn't require her to fix it. She was able to overcome it by not doing it. I mean, she didn't have to worry about facing the twisties by not twisting. If you look at her beam performance, there was not one twist other than her wolf turns on the beam. So that was the biggest concern is, was she going to do a watered down full end discount or a double double, which is extremely difficult. However, she did a double pike and that's how she was able to face that fear to really get rid of, you know, any looming concerns about mental health or physical health. She knew she could do a double pike in her sleep. It's probably something she learned when she was eight years old even yeah and Fitz you know she gets to go out on her own terms 
She gets another medal that now ties her for the most Olympic medals for a gymnast with seven. She has 24 world championships. She has four moves named after her. She gets to go out smiling, arms in the air, getting a medal for herself and her country. And also in her absence, every single member of the women's gymnastics team from Team USA got themselves a medal in at least one event. I think it's also key just to know that she was able to get out there because Mm-hmm. That allows this chapter to sort of close to some level yep. for her without it lingering in her mind. I mean, the what ifs and the might coulds that could stick with you forever of knowing that you didn't get the opportunity to choose your exit from the Olympics. I can't imagine that on top of everything else from a mental health aspect. So for her to go out and do something that, you know, in, in the words of Dominic Dawes was easy for her that she could do in her sleep and still walk away with the bronze and still get the accolades that comes with that while closing this chapter. I think there's a lot of power uh, to mm-hmm. that. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. That's not the only thing, obviously, we've been watching with the Olympics. A lot of eyes on the men's basketball team, uh, another team that we expected to be dominant that has at times struggled a little bit through the process of it. They beat Spain 95-81. That takes them to the semifinals of the Olympic men's basketball tournament. They're going to play Australia on Thursday, but they had to overcome a 10-point deficit to do it, and it wasn't a game that necessarily looked Easy. Brian Windhorst, ESPN NBA insider this morning, though, says Team USA is starting to get their rhythm. They've played parts of the last two games just brilliantly. You know, they've not started these games well. And one of the things that you're noticing is these teams are, you know, these are elimination games for these teams. And they are coming out with, you know, just like you would in an NCAA tournament game. I mean, today's game, Ricky Rubio was absolutely at full go from the tip-off. He had 38 points, the most points anybody's ever scored against Americans in the Olympics. And the, and the U.S. wasn't ready for that intensity. So they're going to have to improve that. But once they've gotten their feet under them the last few games, they have just so much offensive firepower, and Durant is getting hot. And so when they're playing at their, their level, they're, they're going to win. But they just don't have as much margin for error as they seem to think they have in these games. Yeah, Fitz, we were asked on Around the Horn today if the U.S. is in the right place now, and everyone was kind of like, yeah, it was great. They won. They're really putting it together. And I was like, hold up a minute. They let Ricky Rubio score 38 points. They got behind and depended on the three-point shot, which they managed to get back in a groove in in the second half. But they struggled from beyond the arc. They've got no size inside. This is going to be a problem if they get cold from three in future games. And the team they're playing next, Australia, despite losing Aaron Baines to that wild bathroom injury, is a team that's beaten them twice and is consistently in the top international tournaments. I'm not saying I don't have faith in this team. They still are better than everyone. But I didn't see enough against Spain, which is, as I said on the show, past its prime, which is unfortunate because my name is Spain and I am also a bit past my prime. And that was not lost on anyone But that team should have been a much easier win for them when you compare it to what they can expect from Australia and eventually Luka and Slovenia if they make it that far. Yeah, I think Luka and Slovenia is sort of one of the better stories of the Olympics here. A a country that has never gotten a basketball medal uh, is right there because of the greatness of Luka Doncic. You're right. This path doesn't get any easier. There's just more and more uh, of NBA players involved in this process. And, you know, as much as we can all trust the fact that they're simply better than everybody else, that didn't work for the U.S. women's national soccer team. It doesn't yeah, always work execute. that easily. Uh, that being said, speaking of better, we may have had the best possible race we could have last night in the hurdles, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, this was unbelievable. I've seen a lot of celebrations in track. I have never seen someone rip their singlet open Hulk smash style and, and flash some nipple on the, on, the, uh, on the track afterwards. But it was deserved. 
uh, Karsten Warholm, who's the Norwegian, and Rye Benjamin, the American, had traded back and forth these unbelievable times in the 400-meter hurdles. This is a record that had not been broken since 1992. Neither of these men were alive when this world record was set. Both of them ran faster than it. Warholm narrowly beating Benjamin. It was an unbelievable race. They smashed the record um, some are literally calling it the greatest race in Olympic history. Sometimes, Fitz, racers are trying to beat each other for medals. So often those world records aren't broken at these events because it's about strategy. In this case, they just ran flat out. And tonight we're going to get a similar race. We've got Delilah Muhammad versus Sydney McLaughlin on the women's side. And Sydney McLaughlin has set the world record. And Delilah Muhammad has won a bunch. Of, and we're going to get another 400-meter hurdle race that's going to be insane. Now, the the track and field this year has been particularly captivating, and I can't say it enough. Watching it last night, late last night, and watching them run in that level of rain was right. just absolutely and they were fine it was i mean it's somebody that trips walking up the stairs the whole time i'm just thinking my god don't fall that's why they're olympians and i just sit in front of a microphone all right we'll get some insights from one of our favorite olympic experts next on what to expect and what we've seen so far on spain and fits on espn radio spain and fits the podcast simone biles back competing today gets a bronze on the beam continues to teach us a whole lot of lessons about standing up for yourself self-care, gymnastics, the twisties, all the things that we don't really acknowledge and discuss that go on in a sport that puts so much pressure on those who compete in it, so much joy and glory to be achieved. But a lot of stories coming out from older gymnasts talking about how the patterns that they saw this year are things that have existed in the sport for a long time, and maybe finally we're getting a chance to talk about it. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline including ESPN senior writer Alyssa Ronick, who joined us a couple times before everything went down. So let's just start on a personal note, Alyssa. You've been working on covering gymnastics for such a long time, and your beat was really Simone Biles and this U.S. gymnastics team. What kind of a whirlwind was it reacting to and trying to express to people through your work really what was going on with Simone and cutting through all the noise? It, you know, and also doing it from a time zone 16 hours away. Right. But I think I think you're right. I mean, the hardest thing was, you know, for me, I would I would do two things. I would stay off Twitter and off all social media before I wrote. And then after, you know, anything that I wrote was posted, I, you know, tried not to go too deep into the abyss of of social media. But I would use a lot of what I saw, especially the negative stuff. In the radio interviews and podcast interviews, I would do uh, afterward because I think a lot of people just do not understand what she has been through in her life, the sport of gymnastics, and what it took for her, especially on that first day of team finals, to pull out of the rest of the event and not and not compete. And, and you know, I saw so many people, and still see people calling that a a selfish decision, a cowardly decision, and it just could not have been anything more different. Alyssa, that's so many talking heads and, and people on social media saying that. What was the reaction like from people that were actually there and around her? Well, I think there was there was a difference mostly between 
I think the gymnastics community and the larger sports community, the gymnastics community, if you think of everything that has happened in the past five years, at the last Olympics, we did not, the larger public did not know the name Larry Nasser. We did not yet know that those gymnasts were competing while being abused. We did not know, you know, the extent to which the psychological and mental abuse that went on within the sport. And so the sport itself has been so primed to see an athlete and to laud and cheer an athlete who stands up and places her mental and physical health first and says no. And so I think within the gymnastics community, there has been nothing but support and people who follow the sport closely outside of the sport is where, and and the larger sports audience who sees gymnastics once every four years, every five years, that is where I've seen a lot more criticism and and a misunderstanding of Biles quote quitting on her team. Melissa Ronick is with us, ESPN senior writer who's been covering this women's gymnastics. One of the best, or I guess silver lining things to come out of Simone not competing on all the events that she qualified for is that every single U.S. gymnast Mm -hmm. came home with a medal, which is really remarkable, including Michaela Skinner getting ready to fly home and instead throw on that leotard and get out there and compete in an event that you didn't plan for and getting a silver. How much respect should we have for the kind of mental gymnastics, pardon the pun, of, you know, readjusting who was going to compete when. Every single one of those women were remarkable. And you're right. I mean, if you think about Michaela Skinner's story, her story was crazy before she got to the Olympics. And then to see her, you know, come to the Olympics, think that her, her games had ended. And then, like you said, she had a flight booked for Tuesday. They told her, hey, why don't you stick around? There's a chance you might compete. And then to do it, to, to compete last minute and in a vault final, you know, as, as uh, possibly you heard a lot of people also talking about the fact that there's a, there's no one touch warm up at the Olympics in uh, FIG international competition, which is incredibly dangerous. And the vault final saw a lot of falls. We saw Jade Carey, who was a gold medal favorite trip. So just, so for Michaela without a warm up. Stepping in last minute to take a silver medal was absolutely incredible. And, you know, I think it was Simone revealed a a bit last night, this morning, (laughs) whatever it was, after she competed about how hard it really was for her to, you know, to have to sit in the stands. It's not what she planned. She spent five years preparing for this moment. But as soon as she accepted that she could not safely compete, she was the biggest cheerleader for all of those women. And, and, I think, you know, Michaela has said, you know, that really meant so much. And it, she felt that when she was on the competition floor. But, you know, it's from starting in team finals, seeing Suni Lee step in on floor and, you know, um, women from around, you know, I kept thinking of this sort of like tree of all the, all the women around the world who benefited from, from Simone stepping away from competition until she was ready. I mean, there, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. So, Alyssa, with that being said, what's the lasting impact on that group of women that are rising in gymnastics? And where are we going without Simone Biles as part of it? I think her lasting impact is incredible. I've seen so many people and and a lot of friends who have kids in gymnastics say, I feel better about my child being in this sport knowing that Simone Biles has been in it for the past 10 years. And I do think, you know, when you look around and, and even to see a gymnast at the Olympics, post about the fact that 
they wish there was a one-touch warm-up, a one-touch 30-second warm-up, to see them criticize FIG, to criticize the Olympics. I mean, to think of that five years ago, to have these athletes stand up and believe that I have a voice, my voice will be heard if I use it, and I'm not going to be punished for doing so. I mean, she already has made such an incredible impact. You look at the next generation of elite athletes, I always think about, you know, Morgan Hurd standing, the 2018 world champion, standing in Times Square at an, at an anti-Asian hate rally with a megaphone in her hand. That would not have happened if athletes like Simone hadn't shown them that you can speak out and use your voice, and, you know, and speak against social injustice and and still be a, a world champion and, and not be hindered by the fact that you used your voice and, and um, you know, spoke out for the things that you believe in. Alyssa Ronick is here with us on Spain and Fitz on the Goodyear Hotline. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Alyssa, we have talked about Simone saying outright part of the reason she wanted to compete was that there would be a survivor of Larry Nassar on the team so that USA Gymnastics couldn't try to brush it aside, let people forget. If she's indeed done, and she kind of didn't say for certain that she wouldn't maybe look to Paris, but she might be done. Do you feel like this conversation that we're having and Michaela Maroney's Instagram stories talking about what she's Mm -hmm. been through and people acknowledging that Carrie Strug was a big moment, but also a not particularly empathetic or sensitive moment for her? um, Do you think that that changes things going forward? Or when we lose someone like Simone and her voice, do people revert back to the kind of treatment that a lot of these athletes have had to deal with over the years? I think it's a good question. You know, I think the the next generation of athletes, like I said, are learning from Simone how to use their voices. But also, the good news is she's not going anywhere. She still has her voice on social media. She's still, you know, she's still represented by brands that are going to make her the face of those brands. She has, you know, the tour that is typically the U.S. USA Gymnastics Tour post-Olympics is the Gold Over America Tour. It's the Simone Biles Tour. She picked the athletes who are in it. So she's going to be competing on that tour and traveling around the country for the rest of the year. So, I mean, she's still going to be this really visible athlete in her sport. And she said until they have answers, until there's a settlement, until there's an independent investigation, she is going nowhere. So she might not be competing. I mean, some of us have hope that maybe, you know, that the the desire to, to, to perform the the Yurchenko double and have it named the Biles maybe, you know, if she if she's able to move past this moment and, and train for whether Worlds or another World Championships or, you know, maybe to Paris. And even if she's done, I, I still think she's going to be incredibly visible and vocal and is not yeah. going to, um, you know, sort of step away from, from holding, holding the sport accountable for what happened. Sure sounds like it with her gym and everything else, too, staying involved. Hey, Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Alyssa. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Alyssa Ronick, ESPN senior writer with us. Fitz, going to leave this topic with this note from Simone Biles' Instagram about six days ago, which was really heartbreaking and also moving. She said, the outpouring love and support I've received has made me realize I'm more than my accomplishments and gymnastics, which I never truly believed before. Mm. Which is really tough to hear. And hopefully, uh, she also said she walked around the Olympic Village expecting criticism and instead mostly was thanked by athletes for her bravery. You, you you love to see that and hear that because I think 
Uh, this story's not quite over for her, especially all the media she'll have to do after this. Alyssa Ronick brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear more driven. Coming up, we'll re-hit NBA free agency, and I'll try to get myself back into a positive mindset despite Kevin Pelton and Nick Friedel and my bulls. It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We're going to take today and be joyful at least for the Bulls. Not so much for the Lakers, but at least for the Bulls today. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. In fact, ESPN Radio overall is presented by Progressive Insurance. You could say big when you bundle your auto, home, motorcycle, RV, or boat. Visit Progressive.com. Now, let's be progressive here for a second, Sarah, because this is a big day for Bulls fans and an okay day for Lakers fans. And these are two very, very different takes than we're getting from a lot of people. I'd like to think that it means that we are just sitting at a slightly higher level. Maybe we're just smarter than everybody, or maybe we're going to find out everybody else is smarter than all of us. But I do believe at this point today, there's a lot of reason for you as a Bulls fan to be excited. We talked about it a little yesterday, but today when I saw the word and, and you saw the word that DeMar DeRozan is going to be joining the Chicago Bulls, to me, I looked at it and said, man, I love a team that's being aggressive in bettering their situation. I, it, does it mean they're better than Brooklyn? No. Does it mean that they're bettering their situation? Yes. And isn't that what you want as a fan? Yeah. So first of all, I just love to root for someone that I think is a great player and a great person, and that's DeMar DeRozan. He was on my ESPNW podcast or summit that turned into my podcast talking about mental health. He's beloved in the places that he's played. I like having someone that I want to watch and care about to root for. It makes it more interesting, especially when the team has been as pathetic as they've been uh, so late, so much lately. And you know, you can argue both that this makes them relevant and interesting and watchable, and you could still say that they might have put themselves in sort of the basketball hell of mediocrity, where you're sitting in the middle of the of the East, you're out of the lottery, so you can't get that superstar player. But we haven't been hitting in the lottery. We haven't been able to get superstar players in free agency. So, you know, it's been years and years of losing and not being interesting. So why not try something different, right? And the ability to actually have some players in Lonzo Ball and DeMar DeRozan who choose to go to the Bulls is entirely about the new head coach and the new front office, right? That wasn't happening with Gar Packs. That, that, that wasn't going to happen until you got someone that people trusted. And so I, I just, I'm excited to watch these players, even if some people may be right in saying that it's not making them good enough. They weren't good enough before these moves either, and they weren't in a position to get any better with, this, with the, you know, whatever that draft pick might be and, and Thad Young. So, you know, I, w- I would rather watch and be entertained by middling Eastern Conference playoffs than yet another season of missing the postseason altogether and then doing nothing in the draft. Well, I think part of it for me is also just, you know, when you think about what you just talked about, I, I don't I want to talk out of both sides of our mouth when it comes to the draft. And one thing we talked about with the NBA draft last week is what a crapshoot the NBA draft particularly is. It is so difficult mm-hmm. to project to project any of these players that are coming out in the draft. So that's one way to build your roster. But even that takes you being very bad and getting the draft right for several years in a row. And then getting to the point that that young core builds to where a veteran wants to come and play. 
to me, it's a lot faster to look at your system in the NBA and say, hey, this is where we are. We're not good enough and we want to get better. So can we spend enough now to make ourselves at least relevant in the conversation? And relevant is enough to then put you in a different spectrum when you're talking to free agents about where they want to play. And I keep looking at the Hawks as such a good example of this as a team that, you know, two years ago, they weren't on anybody's mindset. Last year, it was, uh, I don't know. Now it's, oh, well, people are going to want to play with Trey Young. I mean, it takes that, you know, and yes, they got Trey Young through the draft. But if you're looking at the Bulls situation, to me, they're looking across the board saying, hey, Lonzo was a better player than a lot of people realize at some point. DeMar DeRozan is an established player that's already had a heck of a run in this league. You can look at some of these pieces they're putting together and say, hey, if all they are is entertaining and relevant this year, will they be seen differently in next year's free agency class, which helps them get better faster? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to depend on that because, you know, I'm, I'm just unfortunately a lot of really smart basketball minds are just seeing this very differently than me. And I'm not going to be um, I'm going to humble myself to those who spend every day looking at the at the financials of this. You and I have often talked about that's kind of where we bow out is getting into the you know, mid-level exception, bird rights, et cetera, where you need to be a full-on accountant to understand exactly how teams have to do the things they do. Um, but, you know, another story, John Hollinger just wrote talking about how, you know, the Bulls didn't seem to be bidding against anyone anywhere near the worth that they gave DeMar DeRozan, could have gotten him for a lot less, and that he's not sure about the fit and whether he's that much more valuable to this team than what they had in a younger player in Thad Young. So, um yeah, unfortunately, they're taking the wind out of me for my excitement about getting to see someone who, like I said, top 30 in ESPN player rankings last season, a guy who I've watched be successful and has all-star potential still. Um, it, yeah, it's 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 uh, going to be a wait and see, I guess, but at least it's going to be a wait and see that I want to watch. And it involves movements and aggressiveness instead of sitting back and failing over and over in free agency and drafting, which is what we've done for years. So, And to that end, I mean, at some point, the question every fan base is asking is, are we doing enough to get our team to the next level? And that's something Lakers fans are asking themselves right now. Obviously, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. We talked yesterday about the fact that the, the Lakers were going to have to hit home runs with a bunch of guys that are w- willing to play for va- basically nothing in order to build enough of a lineup around the big three of Russell Westbrook, uh, AD, and LeBron. Well, one of the bigger signings today, one of the bigger names that we saw come across the board that they were able to pull off was Melo. And to that end, Stephen A. Smith is very excited for Carmelo Anthony. My man, my brother, Melo, is in La La, a member of the Los Angeles Lakers. I love it. It's a big deal. He's going to have an opportunity to win a chip, which is all I want for my man Mello. Of the Banana Boat crew, he's the only one that's never been in the NBA Finals. CP3 was just there. D-Wade got three. LeBron's got four. I want to see Mello in the Finals. I'm rooting for the Lakers now more than ever. Mello, who y'all thought, a lot of y'all thought was finished years ago. Look at this brother right here. Big time addition for the Lakers. With AD, with Russ, with LeBron. Melo going to get some open shots now. Look out, y'all. I mean, I just have to say it, Sarah. In 2019, there's a very famous moment where somebody called in to Stephen A. Smith's radio show, pointed out that Melo was exactly who the Knicks needed. He said, shut the hell up twice and hung up on the caller. So it's not some <laughs> of us that gave up on Melo. It's uh, basically all of us. A lot of people weren't sure I mean, if he mm-hmm. still had it, and a lot of that was what he was saying, right? 
I'm not coming off the bench. I'm not being a bench player. And then he humbled himself. And this is certainly a humbling moment if you think about it, Fitz. His counterpart and LeBron drafted the same year. LeBron still the superstar, highly paid megawatt player. And he's the veteran taking minimum to come back and hopefully get a ring and be a part of it. Uh, but uh, you like to see it if it ends up with a with a positive result for him. Well, this is all going to come down to AD and LeBron and if they're healthy. And I don't care who's around them. That's all we're going to be focused on with the Lakers moving forward, no matter what additions they make. All right, we're going to get some expertise on everything that happened to the U.S. women's national soccer team so far next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I want to get everybody caught up in a big NCAA story, Sarah. And I think this sort of hit close to home for us. Uh, we've talked a lot about the women's Final Four and the, the treatment that the women's Final Four has gotten over the last several years, uh, really forever. Uh, there was a gender equity review, and that review has been released this afternoon. And according to the Associated Press, they made it very clear. They have some suggestions that the NCAA men's and women's tournament, their Final Four, should take place in the same uh, arena at the same time so that they get equal you know, sort of opportunity. But their report goes all the way down to their broadcast partners to be very transparent, even says that they should review their relationship with ESPN as soon as possible to ensure that the NCAA, the conferences, and the member institutions are being fairly compensated for the product their sport mm-hmm. puts on the floor. I think that's a staggering thing for this review to come back and say. Fitch, you remember we talked about this first when I believe it was Sally Jenkins unearthed a previously hidden revelation about the NCAA having basically grouped together every single championship in the NCAA with the deal for CBS to get men's basketball final four March Madness rights. So they said, if you buy this, you get everything that goes with it. And because of that, it didn't allow the various championships, whether that's women's basketball, otherwise to market themselves, to choose who they did deals with. And CBS sort of threw in these deals with the people who made sponsorship offers on the men's basketball side. It's not all the same sponsors that would want to work on the women's side. They very, they very, very, very tragically undervalued the women's basketball tournament. One that they kept trying to tell us didn't make any money, even as we watched 8 million people view it, even as we looked at all the sponsorships lining the court in different places. So essentially, this report is saying that women's basketball specifically and other things are worth way more than what the NCAA is allowing them to make from TV rights and other things. It's a lot of what we've been saying all along, Fitz, but now that it's in writing, the question is, does something actually get done or does Mark Emmert and his bunch of NCAA cronies and team and, and school presidents find ways to continue obfuscating their responsibility to these female athletes and programs? Because that's what they've been doing for years, despite a lot of this already being well known. It should be noted, Connecticut coach Gino Oriema said that they weren't so he's not sold on combining the final fours wants to make sure that no one sort of loses out an opportunity, which is just a reminder that this is a very complicated discussion. Mm-hmm. But these reports remind us that we need to be having these discussions if yep. we want to get this wrong righted. And that's not going to be an easy thing to do, but these are smart people. They can do it. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.